Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Dr. Monica Sony, Associate Chief Medical Officer of New Century Health. She's here to talk about time toxicity. Dr. Sony, I'm really excited about this topic. Thanks for speaking with me today. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So let's get started. Please talk about your background and your work for New Century Health. Absolutely. So I'm an internal medicine physician. So I'm a little bit of a masquerader in New Century Health, which manages risk, mostly in cardiology and oncology. But I feel like a you know doctor that's worked in outpatient and inpatient settings. I really bring a specific perspective, which is about how to center the patient at the middle of care. So I work cross-functionally in the organization, supporting a lot of our Medicaid plans. I'm really thinking about our highest vulnerability populations. Um, I advance our quality agenda, our health equity strategy as well, and you know just try to make operations smoother for everybody here. Well, in an article you wrote for STAT, you talked about the need for clinicians to be honest with cancer patients about their outcomes. Can you expand on this? Yes. And, you know, it's tricky. I don't want to imply that physicians are not honest. I think that we um, we soften language quite a lot and we use euphemisms. And the way that you talk in the break room with the physicians or with the residents that are in training is so different than what you the way you speak to patients. And it should be, right? Like you should bring your best bedside manner. But where I start to get worried is when we're not actually giving the full information to picture to patients or the full picture. And it's their body, it's their life. And so um, there was this sort of unbelievable study that looked at oncologists and their patients. The patients all had metastatic advanced disease and we're not gonna survive that cancer. And they interviewed both sets and they said, how long do you think you know, the patient's gonna live? And they asked the patient, how long do you think you're gonna live? They asked them things like, do you have cancer that can be cured or not? And the oncologist and the patient's understandings were opposite. Wow. Huge swaths of the patients thought that they had curative cancer and were gonna live more than five years. And the oncologists were like, no, they're not gonna live more than five years, none of them. Zero percent of them are gonna live more than five years, they had metastatic cancer. <clears throat> this was published in JAMA. And it is just sort of blew my mind. And I, when I really thought about that article, I said, of course, of course, because we're not that clear with patients about their prognosis. We're uncomfortable talking about it. Sometimes patients and their families are nervous, of course, to hear the information. And so I just felt very passionately that we could do better. Well, how does one even begin to have such a conversation with a patient? Uh, for example, uh, I have a friend who uh, he's got metastatic pancreatic cancer. He was mm. diagnosed um, more than five years ago mm. um, and he's still alive today. I mean, he does his his weekly infusions, but he's still alive today. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, doesn't that kind of conversation require nuance? Of course, a hundred percent. And I would say, you know, we're not God and we should never play God. And so we'll never be able with certainty say, 
this is the day that you're going to die or this is what's going to happen to you. But we do have a lot of studies and statistics. And so we can certainly say patients like you, patients I've cared for like you, patients that have this certain circumstance, here's the probability, here's the likelihood of things happening. Um, we can ask permission to talk about what does it look like when you actually are in the last three months, six months, nine months of, of a disease like metastatic pancreatic cancer. And you can work with patients on what their goals and wishes are so that you can make sure that at every step of the way you're meeting them. But the first thing has to start with, you can't be afraid to talk about whether or not this disease is likely to kill you or not, right? You have to at least have that shared level of understanding um, to start with. But do patients yeah. understand that when they get such a, I mean, getting that information to begin with is such a, a, a such a burden, right? Yeah, shattering. Shock to your system. Yes. Um, you know, you see in the movies when they say you have cancer and the next thing you hear, the person goes like, whoop, 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 because like you don't hear anything anymore. It just all goes yeah. to the background because you just received this like kind of bricks. When you say that doctors should talk statistically, um, do patients understand that? Yeah, and, and you know, I'm obviously using more technical terms with you, but that's not how you talk by the bedside. And I, your point is so, so well taken. You know, we as physicians are on 15 minute, 20 minute increments. We had a list of things we want to get through and you sort of just blow through it. Even if you're kind and gentle and caring, your agenda is not always the same as the patient's agenda. So I would say it's not a singular conversation. I think you write things down, you ask loved ones, caregivers, whoever else is important to the person to be there too. You take it into pieces. Like I said, you ask permission for how much they're ready to hear and when, and then you go from there. It doesn't have to be a one and done. And I, I think that's the other problem is sometimes it's a checklist thing for us and it's kind of like a one and done. Yeah. I talked to them, I told them it was metastatic cancer already. Many, many physicians will say that. Um, and that's not the way that the conversation can happen for all the reasons you just articulated. What is time toxicity? Yes. I'm so excited we're talking about this because um, in, <laughs> in the oncology space, there's been a lot of focus on obviously clinical toxicity, the side effects, things that land you in the hospital, make you feel crummy, financial toxicity, right? Just breaking the bank, medical bankruptcy. Um, and I think this third pillar of time toxicity, there's been more and more recognition of how important it is to think about. So there was a study that looked at patients with pancreatic cancer who got surgery and mapped out <clears throat> of the days that they had alive, how much time was spent in the clinic, at appointments, getting labs done, getting imaging done versus spent outside of those settings. And it was, it was really an underestimate, but they were like, you know, probably 10% at least of alive days are spent in a medical setting. And then people started to say, that's a way underestimate. How about the driving? How about the parking? How about the loved one that has to take off to come with you? How about the day after the infusion where you feel so crummy that you can't do anything anyway? Or the urgent care visit that you had that wasn't captured in there because you were so nauseous and vomiting. And so this idea to me is a very patient-centered measure. It's for us as physicians and clinicians to think about when you talk to patients about their wishes, if they say, I want to spend as much time as I can with my family living a high quality of life, we better be thinking about the time toxicity, right? We better think about not just, okay, how do I have you um, have some extra you know, days or months of life? 
not just how do I, you know, diminish the amount of physical toxicity you have, but how much time is that going to take from you um, as well? So I really love this because it forces us as clinicians to think a little bit outside of the box versus, again, more like cookie cutter medicine. I'm going to do this and then this and then this. If someone says to me, I really don't want to come back next week or the week after, or I'd like to spend a whole month away from you all, I'm tired of being in the hospital. How do we maintain outcomes and still deliver care with that mindset? There's also the conversation that I imagine some patients have to have with their boss, like, hey, you've taken off all of this time. I'm going to dock you. Or I'm going to fire you. That's yes. another thing that we don't think about when we when we talk about uh, time toxicity. Oh, yes. And so the the one area I've been really kind of digging into is this idea of hypofractionation for breast cancer. Really, the excellent studies done that showed you can use um, fewer, essentially fewer days of therapy as compared to what people traditionally done. And for you know breast cancer, often younger women um, who may be working, who may have families at home, so it's a big deal to be pulled away. Um, the therapy is every day in sequence for weeks. So even, you know, it's not, it's only 15 minutes of the day of actual therapy, but the driving, the parking, the time off to your point in time. And it's every day for weeks. You can do hypofractionation and shave off like five weeks of therapy with no change in outcomes. So no change in survival, no change in outcomes. Patients are more adherent. Obviously it's easier to do fewer weeks than more weeks for the reasons we talked about. And there's less physical toxicity. You know what's crazy about this? Doctors are still not doing hypofractionation. Why do you think that is? You know, I have my cynical answer and then my less cynical answer. I like the cynical answer, please. <laughs> <laughs> the cynical answer is um, we still have in most places a fee-for-service fee payment structure. So the more I do, the more I get paid. And I don't think it's always nefarious, but I think if you're like, well, this is what we've done for a long time, and I happen to get paid more for that, and, and maybe the money that I make from that actually goes back to patient services, maybe it pays for my financial counselor and my nutritionist for reasonable good things, but still, there's dollars connected to more, you know, it, it changes the way people behave. So that's my cynical answer. My last cynical answer is that it's very hard to keep up with, um, you know, the data and the evidence. You get trained a certain way. And then you kind of practice like that for the rest of your career. It's pretty difficult to change physician behavior. It's difficult to change any of our behaviors, just to be honest, right? Like what we do day in, day out is what we do day in and day out. And that's the same in the medical setting. Um, so that's my less cynical answer. It's just that people get into habits and they don't maybe rethink things like time toxicity, financial toxicity, and physical toxicity. I wonder what you think of the idea. I have an idea that I think on some levels, doctors say to themselves, well, this is important and this trumps everything else. And there's not that, there's not that, they don't have perspective that this is someone's life. I think they think about it, their life in terms of we've got to beat this condition at all costs, but not the cost to the patient outside of the treatment. Oh, this is, I was just working in the hospital last week and you could, what you're saying is so true. We're very, um, unforgiving and poorly understanding. So there was a gentleman that came into the hospital and had terrible um, uh, worsening kidney function. He was getting treated for cancer. 
And he said, oh, he said almost this exactly same thing. He was like, I just needed time away from you all. So even though his oncologist sent him to the emergency room to get admitted to the hospital, he was like, I'm leaving. I just don't want to do this. Like, unless you tell me I'm going <laughs> to die right now, like, I just want to go home and I'll come back in a few days. And um, we, of course, were like, you're leaving against medical advice. And like, we make it seem so scary. And we do all these things to make someone feel guilty and bad for telling us that they just need some time away from us, which is terrible. We're supposed to be centering their needs. There is a way to be, again, creative and outside of the box. You can do labs, go home. We can give you some fluid, come back in a couple more days, recheck. I can do an outpatient study. I mean, there's a lot that we can do. We can do cancer therapy at home home, we can do things like hypofractionation, but we don't, right? We don't think about all of the ways that what we're doing is difficult for somebody. We want them to accommodate to what we do, right? Instead of thinking about accommodating to what they need. What does hypofractionation look like? Yeah, essentially it's at the very beginning of making a treatment plan. You would say, look, <clears throat> based on this, you know, characteristic of your cancer and, you know, how severe it is and other factors, I believe that we can treat with fewer uh, sessions than I traditionally would do. And that's kind of it. And then you just make the plan and then the person only has to come in. You know, again, like I said, the five weeks. For hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the nine weeks, depending on the cancer type, et cetera. It's really no like big skin off of anybody's back. It's just a matter of like, do you think about it early enough on in the treatment phase? And do you make the plan accordingly? Um, and so the data is most robust in breast cancer and in prostate cancer, but there's a few other cancer types where this has also been recommended. In COVID, during the pandemic, when we were trying to limit people coming in, the adoption in the U.S. of hypofractionation went way, way up. But Europe has been doing this for decade plus. It's just the U.S. and our payment structure that probably has impeded the uptake here. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you my story? So... I have, I, I carried a BRCA2 gene mutation. My yes. mother died of metastatic breast cancer. Um, and so what that means for me, uh, you know, as you know, is lots of visits to the um, the oncologist, you know, who's the team lead. Yes. And then, you know, uh, now I, I had two biopsies in the space of um, um, six weeks. Um, now I'm talking to uh, the surgeon and the plastic surgeon. I mean, 
all of that stuff like really cuts into my time. I'm already extremely busy. And by the way, neither of the biopsies revealed anything. Um, but this, the whole, the process has just worn me down so much that I've just decided I'm going to do the prophylactic because I just want to get off this train, like 2022. And I, and I talked about it in many of my um, podcasts, the frustration with the whole process and the time suck it's been, I call it yeah. like a carousel, um, that I just want to get off the carousel and I don't even have cancer. So yes. My question then becomes like, how do doctors, you know, how do they reduce toxicity for patients? Because it feels like it's sort of built into cancer care and cancer treatment. It is. I will say that I think things are changing. The pandemic really kicked us all on the butt as a health you know, system in that we had to think creatively about how do you deliver services in different ways. So think about telehealth. I mean, specialty care really wasn't a huge adopter of telehealth. And in the system where I was working previously, we went from like, pretty much 2% of all specialty visits being phone or video to 90% over the course of two weeks because we had to by necessity. And right. it's sort of settled out in most systems, maybe 60, 40 or something like that. But it took a <laughs> global pandemic to force the health system to really start focusing on patient-centered care. But I do think some pieces are here to stay. Telehealth is here to stay. A lot of movement towards infusions at home, cancer infusions at home, teaching patients how to self-administer subcutaneous or, you know, injectables. So we did that. I feel like that's here to stay too. And then I, I do think that um, the health system has to be kind of forced to, to think about payment reform so that those alternative sites continue to get reimbursed. Because right now, many of those things aren't, or it's under the emergency still. And so when those protections go away, we could backslide again. Mm. I mean, it got to a point where um, I had to leave um, an appointment because the appointment just took so long. I was uh, parked at a meter. The, the meter expires in two hours here in New York. Um, and I, I said, look, you know, I'm, I, I can't stay. And they're like, oh, no, you'll be here. Sure. And I said, no, you don't understand. My appointment was a half hour ago and I was here 45 minutes ago. So I'm leaving. You're going to have to reschedule this. Like, I'm going to need my copay back and I'm leaving, you know, and I just wonder about people who um, who don't have that. And I, and I consider myself, you know, having the luxury of, of time in some respects, even though I'm busy. But, you know, I, I don't work at an office. And so I wonder about yeah. people who have this, who look at this and say, I can't do this. I, I've got, I've got kids. I've got my job. Uh, you know, this is costing me a lot of time and money and they fall out of the system. And then we sort of blame yes. them and say, well, they're not prioritizing their care, but it's not that it's that yes. you've made it so difficult for people to get care and maintain the care. You know, it, yes. it's, it's, you, you're 100% right. It's very frustrating. Um, one of the oft, you know, criticized behaviors of patients is that people will go to the emergency room for non-emergency things or go to urgent care, you know, for non-emergency things instead of seeing their primary care um, practitioner. And what I, to me, the reason is what you just described. Those care settings mostly are 24-7. They run on the weekends. You can get all of the studies done in one sitting, labs and imaging and whatever else might be done, and get your prescription at the same time. Most parts of the health system are not set up like that. So how can we blame folks for going to the most convenient you know, setting, even though it's maybe more expensive and not the level of care we want? 
if they're if the consumers are telling you this is what I want, you have to make the rest of the system do that, or else the people will continue to do that. It's just human behavior. Um, it's why we like food to be delivered to our houses. It's not the cheapest way to do it, but it's the easiest for our lives. You know what I mean? So yes, a hundred percent. I'm not into the patient blaming behavior. It's it's not. We need to make ourselves better, right? The health, health professional has to clean up our own house. Um, can you talk about community oncology? How's that different from traditional cancer care? Yeah, and I don't want to make them sound binary um, or that one is traditional because probably actually community oncology is like the OG. <laughs> it's probably like the original way places that people got their care delivered. But um, essentially, it's it's the way you think about your primary care. Some people think about their primary care doctors. It's the doctor down the street that lives in your neighborhood, that knows everybody. Maybe they grew up there too. Um, community oncologists typically, right, are they're standalone or maybe they're a multi-specialty group, but they're really embedded out in the community as compared to an academic medical center that might be more focused on research or grant writing and I mean, advancing the field of, of, of science, a community oncologist is really focused on care, care delivery, right? And hopefully in the most efficient way. So what we're talking about previously, the hour long delays and the parking challenges and all that should be minimized in a community setting because their whole point is to really think about how do we get people in and out and do treatment in an efficient way. It used to be that, that oncology was mostly community oncology there's been a lot of consolidation in many spaces, but in oncology specifically. So practices got bought up by academic centers or other big groups or sort of like ginormous oncology groups. Um, and so the proportion of just standalone community oncologists has shrunk and shrunk over time. And I'll tell you the sort of dirty secret about that, which is that um, typically care delivered by a hospital system or a big academic center is meaningfully more expensive because there's a facility fee connected to it than the community oncologist. So whereas it seems better, like, oh, I'm going to a center of excellence or, you know, I'm going to this academic center. Yeah, there are patients that really need that. But if you're getting kind of run-of-the-mill basic care, basic oncology treatment, that is not the best place to get your care and it's much more expensive. And, you know, to that point, uh, I was going to say that, you know, on the flip side of uh, the conversation, um, I imagine there are a lot of well-meaning oncologists who that who do value the patient's time, but the, the, the system within that huge medical center, the medical system, as you were talking about, just doesn't allow for um, the prevention of um, or amelioration of the time toxicity. So it may not necessarily be the clinician, um, sometimes it's the system that they work in that they don't necessarily, it's not, it's beyond their control. Oh, usually it's beyond their control. It's, it's rarely the clinician who is, you know, at the, at the crux of it. And so think about a community oncologist that has their own nurses, that has their own infusion center, that is sort of built around the care as it should happen from end to end versus someone who has a shared set of nurses, shared infusion center, shared imaging center where it's not just oncology patients coming in, it's rheumatology and it's GI patients. It operationally is much more complicated and that leads to, you know, variable experience. What do you think is important for clinicians to understand about cancer patient care? I think for me, the front of mind thing is there's been amazing progress. The death rate, the mortality rate from cancer has gone down. Some of that is from just less fewer people smoking, but some of it really is from amazing advances in the field. 
um, I will say that we still have huge gaps in terms of outcomes for certain populations. We still have huge gaps by race, ethnicity, Black patients, Latinx patients have, you know, every step of the way, poorer outcomes. They don't get transplants at the same level. They don't get the same surgeries, reconstructive surgeries at the same level. I mean, the gaps are really persistent. And so I, I guess I would challenge us as clinicians to do a little bit of looking in the mirror, which is like, we can celebrate all we want, but if there are groups of patients who have not benefited equally from those advances, is that really progress? Um, so I think that's what I want people to think about is how do we actually deliver the best that we have much more equitably? You know, that goes with, that same goes for the research as well. Like a lot of um, people who, who could be, because so, the thing is, you create a drug and the drug is only based on a small subset of the population. And then you later find out it doesn't work for other patients. Then have you really done your due diligence? You haven't, right? But they use criteria to exclude people who should be part of these. You know, why not change these criteria? You know that um, people of color tend to carry a little more weight. Don't make that a, a you know a reason for them not to to be admitted into the the trials. I, I get that you want perfect results, but if you put a drug out on the market that, that doesn't help with these people, then you haven't really done your job in terms of you know creating a a, a drug, right? Like you so ask another you ask the hard questions though, right? Who whose job is it there, right? And again, I'm not anti pharma, but. Pharma feels like they did do what they needed to do from that perspective. It did work. It, they brought it to the market quickly. Uh, I think the onus is on us as practitioners to start to question that. And I think from a regulatory perspective, we need the FDA to demand certain things. The clinical inclusion criteria has to look like the population that we serve. You're absolutely, you can't be excluding hypertension and obesity, things that are incredibly common for everyone and more common in certain populations that are at risk. So I think there's a bit of regulatory oversight that needs to change. And then I think we as clinicians need to be a little bit more skeptical. That new drug wasn't studied for that patient. So don't use it for that patient because that's actually kind of experimental. You don't know if they're going to benefit from it. And to our earlier conversation point, what's the cost to them, time, physical, and financial? Well said, Dr. Sony. Thank you so much. This is, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> I've been mentally salivating waiting for this conversation with you. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. You know, you, um, you're really an inspiration and you're living so much of this right now that I think your perspective really will make us better as a health system. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time.